You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. The book Holy Smoke is John McAvoy's opus on mezcal. This 500-plus-year-old beverage is experiencing a much-deserved renaissance. John Patrick McAvoy is here, an Irishman, American Irishman who's going to talk, talk to us and teach us about mezcal. Thank you, John, for being on. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Holy Smoke, which is an amazing book name for your first book. Holy Smoke was your first book on Mezcal, released in 2014. And now we're on the updated version because Mezcal has exploded. And as you say, it's not having a moment. It is a movement. Indeed. Uh, so um, perceptions are changing. Mezcal has been thought of as uh, the, the bastard sister of unfinished tequila, the trailer park mm-hmm. drink uh, with the shitty-ass worm in it. Um, yeah. I read the opening couple of chapters of your book, and you mentioned Lucy's on the Upper West Side. <laughs> where <laughs> You've been in New York long enough, you yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> if you drank Mezcal and you got to the bottom and you ate the worm, they gave you the T-shirt, I yep. shot the worm. Yes. I, by the way. We're probably about the same age, so I was hanging out at Lucy's also and was just stupid enough. I may have done it with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very, very cool. But uh, so, um, so tell us, uh, how, do, how do you get into this? Because you have a love of this, but that's not your business. No, mm-hmm. no. My, my business is the world of finance, but um, I was a long-standing tequila drinker. And when tequila started showing up, good tequila started showing up in the mid-'90s, uh, a buddy of mine and myself were we were chasing these good tequilas. We, we had all had horrible college experiences with tequila, sure. and thankfully had, had had moved past them. And so, good tequilas started showing up in the mid '90s. Started drinking a bunch of tequila. By the turn of the century, into the early 2000s, I pretty much had had every tequila um, that uh, that they made, and I, I loved tequila. And that was about the time Mescal started showing up, and there was only a few brands. Del Maguey might have been the only one for the first five years of the 2000s. And I would like to see this bottle, this like green bottle with this colorful label at bars, restaurants, not that many, Mexican places usually. And first I was like, you know, what, what is this? And I tried it, and I was just so intrigued by what was happening, because everything I had known about Mescal was shooting the worm at Lucy's right. uh, previously. So, so how do we go from that crappy product to what is available today and what we're looking at today? Because I, I winced, and it took me a long time to get back to Mezcal, and more because tasting what we were going to taste today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your passion that drove you now to go to Mexico every year and find these obscure mm-hmm. little Mezcals. So what's the difference between the crap we were drinking and what's going? What was that? Yeah, we drinking. Uh, that was crap. <laughs> so, okay. so it wasn't our imagination. Okay, it was, it was crap. It was okay. really shitty. Okay, um, and, and so um, the other stuff was there. You just couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in the U.S. It was in Mexico only, and it wasn't being imported. People didn't know what it was, mm-hmm. and it was made in these largely in these small little villages. 
And so what was showing up on the American shores were these bottles that had a worm in them because somebody had come up with some marketing concept in the 40s or 50s that, oh, if I stick a worm in it, like Americans will find this to be oh, really cool and kitschy and they'll come back from Mexico with this unique bottle sure. that has a worm in it. And it sounds cool, but this stuff was horrible. Right. So, you know, and people were like, oh, that's what mezcal is. It's hmm. like this got a worm in it and it's terrible. Right. And you remember it was always uh, you you get to the bottom of the mezcal, you eat the worm and, the, and that makes you trip. You, you hallucinate and so we're just like you know no it's, it's happened it's like um hey hammerhead you drank a half a bottle of fucking crappy <laughs> shitty mezcal of course you're hallucinating exactly <laughs> that's exactly great. right it's, it's like oh that mezcal well you had a whole bottle and then you didn't drink the right. worm too right. yeah <laughs> and also i think people were confusing mezcal with mescaline at the time which is like huh. totally different so um the stuff that we're going to taste today um is like this unique artisan uh, product uh, that is just kind of it's it is a movement right yeah um so how did tequila steal all the thunder from mezcal mm-hmm. yeah it's a product of history mm-hmm. and um you know in the late 1800s that was kind of when tequila was branded tequila because that was kind of where good tequila was being made in the in the town of tequila mexico mm-hmm. uh and so they just sort of seized the day and um started branding their product to to uh, tequila and they could make it in greater quantities because they changed the production method mezcal tequila is a mezcal a lot of people don't know that but tequila right. is a mezcal any agave distillate is a mezcal so tequila is one subset of that agave distillate that is made from the blue agave only has mm-hmm. to be made from the blue agave mezcal on the other hand is also an agave distillate and it can be made from virtually any other type of agave from which you can produce a distillate. And that's 50, 60, 70 plus, uh, largely somewhat documented, but largely unknown how big that number gets because uh, some of these plants are growing in far-flung valleys and hills across Mexico. So it's unclear how many uh, types of agave. But um, tequila sort of seized the day because you could make it in greater quantities because it wasn't uh, small batch. They figured out how to make it in greater quantities. Even in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, they could make it make it more plentifully, and they were using the blue agave largely, mm-hmm. and that was something that was readily cultivated, sure. and it could grow in six to eight years. Right. So they could make it happen quickly. So mezcal kind of disappeared from the uh, from the consciousness, even within Mexico. You know, I, I've read things, you know, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, where mezcal was considered to be the poor man's drink, hmm. even in Mexico. Wow. You know, the paupers, the miners, the people who couldn't afford a better spirit. And even in as late as 2005, uh, something like 40% of Mexicans considered mezcal to be a poor quality spirit that's you know like 10 15 years ago that's that's crazy so really what we're talking about is production method because tequila figured out how to take this agave plant and basically bake it in autoclave so an oven so they could mass produce it uh and and still it's just like uh so mezcal still is this small uh, we'll talk about the palanques, these little teeny yep. farms. Pal- palanques. Palanques, sorry. Yep. Um, where it's still like a, such a small artisanal product. Um, and tequila has just, it just beat everybody to the uh, punch by mass production. They Henry Ford right. it and brought us uh, something that's still good. But kind of like now with my just tasting mezcal, seems like it's meh, it's not as interesting as uh, mm. a mezcal. So let's, let's talk about, uh, let's first taste a mezcal. 
We'll yeah. taste the first one that you brought in from your secret stash. So tell us about your trip to Mexico, your yearly journey to uh, <laughs> you know, the agave mecca for you yes. uh, to talk about. You know, How do you do that? And what, when did you first start and, and what drove that? Yeah, I probably first went there in uh, 2012. Mm. And then a few within a few years of that, um, my buddy and I, who was traveling the tequila journey with me in the 90s, he and I said, you know, we need to like see if some of our boys want to come with us. You know, we had like a core group of friends that we used to do summer houses with and things like that. And these guys, they didn't like mezcal. They they would maybe tolerate it in a margarita at that right. point. Right. And so we just assumed they weren't going to join us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were all such good friends. We said, hey, you know, Mario and I, we're going, guys. If you guys care to join us, we're going, you know, this weekend in January, Martin Luther King weekend. Uh, and that's become the tradition. And so we uh, they, they, they signed up and they went along. And within like the second day we were there, these guys were going mad hmm. for mezcal. Like we had to go to the market to buy suitcases for several of you guys because we'd already bought more mezcal than they could pack. And you bring, bring it home. And bring it home. Yeah. So here's the crazy thing. Uh, we're talking about, talking about production method. Um, so these, uh, if you're, your tequila's going to mass produce, mezcal is mm. still, uh, if you can draw from 50 to 60 to 70 different agave plants, yeah. obviously your toolbox is so much broader. Absolutely, you bring such an incredible like pr- yes. flavor profile to this uh, to this spirit, um, and so you have been traveling all over Mexico and see this. And uh, I mean, tell the difference between the different kinds of agave that uh, make mezcal. What makes it so beautiful? While we taste one of your suitcase <laughs> series of mezcal that you brought for us to taste from uh, Huaca. Yeah, yeah, we can't yeah. even uh, forget that part. It's the most important part. Mm. Uh, so real quickly, when we come back to the types of agave, what we're, we're drinking here, the first one is from a small producer in Santa Catarina Minas. Felix Angeles is his name. And I was introduced to his mezcals probably about five years ago. And uh, he does, Santa Catarina Minas is known as a clay pot distillation mm. um, town they really if, if there's a, a copper pot in the town they probably would run them out it is mm. it is really it's a small town they're, they're um their mezcals are traditional and making them that way in that town for hundreds of years which is another great thing about mezcal the history we can come back to that sure. um but so felix one of the things i love about his mezcals is a lot of times you drink a clay pot uh, a mezcal that's been distilled in clay pots and the clay pot component which is a, a very earthen mineral component can overwhelm a lot of the flavors in a mezcal. Mm. So what we're drinking here is one of his mezcals. And the reason I love him is because you can taste the clay pot, but it's very subtle Mm. and it allows all these different flavors to flourish in your mouth and on your palate. And they go down and you've got this great finish that just hangs there for literally minutes after you've finished this mezcal. So I love his stuff because he's a clay pot uh, distiller but very soft touch on the clay, and the agaves really can still shine through. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's drink some of this. Sure. Uh, you know. Oh, this is the second one. Okay. Yeah. Of course, we're drinking on these little copitas. These little. Yes. Uh, is this bamboo or what is the? Uh, it's a gourd cup. It's a gourd cup. So yeah. this is this the traditional cup. Absolutely. It's crazy. It looks like those and the little uh, votive uh, candle glasses. Mm-hmm. They have like a little cross in the bottom of them. Right. They're short little shot glasses that are ribbed on the side. That's another. Uh, very traditional glass that you see a lot in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. But what's amazing to me is, um, and I really implore people listening to go find some great mezcal because if you had an idea of what it used to be, it is this is like pineapple and banana, but yeah. it has that light smoke touch, not mm-hmm. something crazy over That's the right. top. 
um, as citrus. It has mineral component. Um, it is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Like crazy. It, it's and, amazing. And people taste something like this, and just have, as you have tonight, you're like, what is this? Right. <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. This is mezcal? Right. Right. Oh, my God. I didn't know it was this. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, 50, 60 different types of agave. So, you know, that range of flavor profiles, it's not just the agave. That's the dominant factor. The fermentation and the wild yeasts, that's a dominant factor as well in the ultimate flavor profile. Almost all mezcals are made, uh, fermented in more or less open air uh, type situations. It's usually covered in some fashion, but open air covered, like you know, under a, a thatched roof or something like that. So you get a lot of different, whatever yeasts are in the air, that's what fer- fermenting that mash. So paint the picture because I've seen, I haven't been, I've been to Mexico, but um, I'll that was a bad story. I'll tell you later, but um, <laughs> it's gotta the, uh, be a good one. Paint a picture of the of, of what it. Uh, you told me you you look down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere and you pull up and there's no electricity. There's yeah. no running water and yeah. this is where they're making mezcal. So yeah. give me an idea of sure. what that's like. Sure. And, and by the way, that's not always the case. Right. Um, you know, some of the more common brands. Uh, even one that I have here, you know, El Holgorio, mm. um, you know, they have a more modernized Palenque, but still these are small production facilities. So mm. sometimes even calling them a distillery is way more glamorous. That paints a, you hear distillery and you think, you know, you know, yeah. modern and, you know, beautiful tiled floors and, you know, an enclosed structure. And, you know, that's not what, and steel you know, fermentation vats and steel stills and all this, that's not what's happening. So the, for the most part, they're very small mm. um, enclosure, you know, semi-open air, but enclosures. And let's say, you know, an entire Palenque is, you know, a big one, like a huge one would be like half court of a basketball court. Okay. Like a small one would be the size of the lane, you know, like oh, we're wow. talking, so that'd be a super small one. Uh, and the, the people in many cases, as you're referencing, they don't have great resources. So they may not have electricity. They may not have running water. Uh, a lot of times they're using the, the water from a river or from a spring for the fermentation. Uh, a lot of times there is no electricity. Uh, they might be getting the running water from a mountainside stream that they're running a hose, literally a hose down a mountain from the stream to provide the cooling for the distillation process. Mm. Um, and some of them, you know, they, they re- really reflect, um, you know, how humbly these people live. Sure. And sometimes you, you see a, a, a very rustic, that's again, a glamorous word almost for what you see, uh, Palenque, and you, you wonder, man, how, how can they make something that I can put in my body and I can, mm-hmm. I can like, enjoy? And then you taste it what this guy's produced or this woman has produced. And it's like, holy crap, it's right. amazing. So, you know, and, and in almost all cases, it's genera- generational mezcal producers, you know, from father to son, from grandfather, from great grandfather. And a lot of them can trace back their roots well into the 1800s. And then they sort of lose the trail. But it's a very, very um, artisanal and cultural and handcrafted process that they've handed down from generation to generation. Okay, so let's get to the, the heart of the agave. Uh, so g- describe how, uh, I mean, since there are 50, 60, I know there's a terroir, which we'll discuss. Yeah. I mean, uh, a great example is an, an agave plant grown 200 miles from another agave plant is not going to taste the same, right? 100% correct. Uh, but then yep. throw in 50 different, 60 different species. Yeah. So talk about like how long an agave plant lives before mm-hmm. it's... Uh, uh, you can use it to yeah. ferment, and and in the fermenting process, which I think it's interesting because I've I've 
uh, rat and seen like they they'll dig a pit in the ground yes. and they'll uh, roast this thing that can weigh anywhere from twenty to one hundred and fifty pounds. Yes. Or, so uh, that's the kind of crazy thing because yeah. it's like that's the palanque stuff where you're like you went down a dirt road and you're like what the hell are these people doing right <laughs> absolutely uh, so describe mm-hmm. some a couple of different scenarios of yeah. that that like this is how they make agave sure. from start to finish yeah sure so um in terms of the growth cycle of agaves you know you have all these different varietals and the growth cycle can be as short as maybe eight years for agave espadine which is the most common type mm-hmm. of um agave and, and readily cultivated and matures relatively quickly, eight years, eight to 12. Um, so you'll, you'll see espadine, mezcal's made with espadine, more common. But um, the other types of agave can range in maturity cycle anywhere from 10 years to as much as like 30 years mm-hmm. uh, when they're grown in the wild. So, you know, and some of them, people don't get a lot of practice producing with those agaves because it takes them 30 years to grow. And an agave, you can only use it to make mezcal at the end of its life. So at the, at the end of an agave's life, it is harvested. It's going to die otherwise. Sure. Uh, so it's reached the end of its life, and that's when you harvest it, and that's when you, you make mezcal. So it really depends on the type of agave in terms of um, how, how long it takes them to grow. And then in, in that process of, the, of, ferment, of crushing, roasting, Fermenting, distilling, crushing, fermenting, distilling, uh, there's a million little nuanced steps along the way mm. that mescaleros can, choices that mescaleros can make to alter that flavor. So, you know, to your comment, you can have one plant, let's say it's an espadine that's grown in one area and 200 miles away, another one is grown, and you can take the exact same producer and he can do things exactly the same way, and he's going to produce two different mescals because of the terroir. Mm-hmm. In that case, the yeasts will be the same in terms of the fermentation. His roasting process will be the same, uh, but generally, if you take those two different types of uh, two different espadines from two different regions, they're going to taste different. Mm-hmm. And you can also flip it and take two different mescaleros from the same agave field, two plants that matured right next to each other, and you can say, okay, you produce one and you produce another. And you might think they're doing things exactly the same, but you know, not to the untrained eye. Sure, and to, the, sure. to my untrained eye, they're, they're doing the same. But um, when you get down to the small details, they're making choices along the way that are greatly going to affect the flavor, and you'll have two different mescals mm. that result in that. So the muscularo basically is the winemaker. He yeah, is the absolutely. person who, who makes the wine. So it's those kind of tweaks and decisions that he's going to put his hand on. That's and right. maybe that uh, decision he's making is based on something that his great-great-grandfather passed down to him. Absolutely. Because he was saying, let's talk about the history. Mescal is 500-plus years old. Yeah. It's one of the oldest distilled beverages, I think, in the Americas, correct? Yes. They think it's the oldest in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I've know some people in my company went to like Durango and they've said, man, we will pull down, uh, we'll go down a dirt road and there'll be a gate and they will not let people in the gate unless they know somebody in the town. Yeah, because they're concerned, and I think rightfully so, of of people coming in and changing their culture, um, and. Uh, that's a fact, right? So, yes, absolutely. So how do you end up getting behind these closed gates a lot of times when you're there? Because, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. And by the way, I'm crazy about this mezcal. <laughs> what's, the mez- what's mezcal? Cause when it's we, hard not to be. It's hard not to be. So we have to give a list of the mezcals that uh, we are uh, drinking, and we'll talk about your favorite places okay. later. But. Sure. Uh, so the second one that we're trying here, before we, we come back to your question, mm-hmm. is from one of my favorite producers, um, El Holgorio. 
They make they're they're very high end bottles. I mean, they they range in price probably anywhere from a hundred and twenty five to two hundred dollars. Uh, so they're they're pricey mezcals, but they're made very small batch, um, made in very small places in an incredibly rustic fashion. And uh, the thing I love most about their brand is they are amazing at letting the taste of the agave shine through the varietal to, sh- to shine mm. through so you really it's almost you feel really connected to the plant mm. when you're drinking el holgorio and i love that about the brand so it's just a it's a fabulous brand uh i've met the people and, and traveled with the people out to their palenques mm. and you know what what they're doing is helping to preserve the tradition of mezcal and many people are, are doing that but they make a beautiful product is there any kind of sadness at, for the people who are harvesting these 30 year old or 50-year-old plants that are at the end yeah. of their life? or I mean, is it just all celebratory and like, yeah. oh, my God, uh, thank you and joyous for giving this, like, great, like, agricultural product for me to, like, now put in my body and receive this, like, spiritual high or lift yeah. from um, this product? Or It's that. Yeah. It's not yeah. the sadness. You're, you're nailing it. The joyous, it. yeah. Yeah, I mean, mezcal is a celebrated spirit mm. in Mexico. And uh, depending on which region and who you're talking to, in many places, it's how drinking mezcal is how people connect with their past and their culture. Mm-hmm. So to them, it's a way to that they can identify with who they are. And so absolutely, they're, they're celebrating a great batch of mezcal. And it's for weddings. It's, all, it's also for baptisms and funerals mm-hmm. as well to celebrate the life that has passed. Uh, so, yes, it's a very ceremonial and important spirit to the culture of the, of the people. And to your, coming back to your question before about, you know, how do you get access to behind the gates uh, sure. of, a, of a palenque mm-hmm. um, or, a, or a small town, perhaps. Uh, so I've mostly traveled in Oaxaca. And in Oaxaca, one of the challenges, which, which you know, 80% of mezcals are made in Oaxaca, in the state of Oaxaca. So in Oaxaca City, which is an, it's an inland place, it's not on the coast, um, in Oaxaca City, you have to travel at least usually you know, 45 minutes an hour to kind of get to the first palenques or relatively small towns that, uh, that are producing. And one of the challenges, even though most of the places I've been to aren't sort of protected behind locked gates or anything, there are, are very few tours, very few tour guides. Sure. There's, it's hard to get access to these places. So there's a, a couple of tour guides that will um, take you out, and there needs to be more because a lot of people just don't have any access. And uh, you know, through my book and my website, I get a lot of requests from people just saying, hey, I'm going to Oaxaca. How can I get to, in, let's say, Santa Catarina Minas? How can I get to Santiago Matatlan? Uh, and how am I going to get there? And, how, and who can I see? So, you know, I'm fortunate that I know a fair number of people now in the industry that I can say, hey, we're, com- we're going here. Can, we, can I go to your palenque? Sure. Uh, you know, and they'll just let, let the mescalero know. But if you know where you're going, you know, you usually don't even have to, have to have an appointment or anything. You just show up and they're happy to sell you mescal because in many of these places, they, don't, they might not even have a brand. Right. Some mm-hmm. some will have a brand, some won't. But a lot of them, like this first one we're drinking from uh, Santiago, from uh, Santa Catarina Minas, the, the guy doesn't have a brand. Sure. He makes money by people showing up and, you know, pouring like, you know, his mezcal into Coke bottles. Sometimes we bring bottles with us. But, you know, a lot of times he's just selling it into, into co- wow. empty Coke bottles or empty water bottles. So when you say small batch and small producers, like yeah. what is small? Um, S- small, like, you know, some of these might be like, a, you know, the total batch of, of this uh, second one from Holgorio that we're drinking. I think it's the total batch was 800 bottles. 
Wow. Hey, you, you, you want I'll, a little I'll bit please, of this? I'll, I'll take a little more yeah, of that. We'll pop uh, that. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, oh. This is their uh, this is their Cinizo. It's a Karwinski, uh, which is a, a very prolific species of agave, and they have many mm. different sub-varietals, uh, Cinizo being this particular one. Mm. So the entire batch, it says it on the, on the uh, entire lot, it says it on the bottle, is 800 bottles. Now, that's not what comes from one distillation. Right. From okay. one distillation is maybe, you know, maybe... Uh, depending on the size of, of the still, 100 to 200 liters. So they're running, you know, this particular batch through, you know, probably four different times or so to get to 800 bottles, maybe pro- maybe less. That's crazy. But yeah, but super small batch. And then when you get to something like um, the first one we were drinking, which is a clay pot distillation, the stills are much smaller. So you might get 20 to 40 liters from one distillation run. So it's a, you know, it's a very handcrafted artisanal manual, a lot of manual labor going into making mezcal because you don't have big column stills you have really you have little pot stills be them clay or copper that can only produce so much at a time mm. are you ever concerned that uh it'll become too touristy or uh mezcal mm. i mean it doesn't seem like mezcal could ever get to the point where tequila is just on a sheer production level right uh I, it would be a challenge mm. it would be amazing if it got anywhere near it in popularity mm. uh, i think it's got a long way to go it's about two percent maybe of the tequila market right. in terms of mezcal cons- consumption but um, uh, there's a lot of people in Mescal that are worried that it can become too popular for its own good mm-hmm. because you have a limited resource of agave that takes minimum of eight years to, go, to grow and in many, time, in many cases more like 30 years. Uh, so, and some are, a lot of it's growing in the wild. But the industry for the last at least five years and maybe closer to 10, most people who care about Mescal have been very focused on that sustainability issue. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of great steps that are happening um, and industry initiatives to keep it, in, in, first from a sustainability perspective, uh, keep it available and sure. allow it to still be produced. So uh, what about wild agave? I mean, do you still mm-hmm. find wild agave? Is that, uh, is that even possible? Uh, no, no, not impossible uh, at no. all. In fact, this, this bottle, this El Holgorio bottle mm-hmm. we're drinking, that's a, from a wild agave. They do these special, this is a black bottle, which for people who know Mescal, they would be like, Oh my God! A Holgorio black bottle because they're they're hard to get. You know they're super okay. they're super hard to find. They they only give them out to you know certain liquor stores and certain bars, so they're hard to get a hold of. You got to know in New York when they come into Astor Wine and Spirits, you got to know so you can like run over there and buy. They they like will limit you you to one bottle per person. Uh, you can't I, I, you can't buy five. Wow! <laughs> I mean I have to tell you this is uh, um, it's something if people are used to drinking the old mezcal that we were talking about at yeah. Lucy's. This will blow you away. Yeah. The, the smoke is subtle. There's a uh, a banana. There's a pineapple. There's a earthy kind of mineral tone that is found nowhere. I can certainly see why um, you, this trip to uh, Light Fantastic for you, and you're like, holy shit, I'm going every year. <laughs> and I'm going to find. I'm sure you had some ugly stories uh, um, uh, running through Mexico. Anytime fear for your life? Oh, uh, thankfully, no. No? no we, okay. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we have never had any... Uh, challenging situations from a security perspective. Uh, thankfully, uh, I've known, you know, maybe I've heard like one or two stories here and there, but, you know, we when we go, first, we, we're not driving because we're going to be drinking. Smart. <laughs> so, yeah. so that means we have a driver. He speaks mm-hmm. very good English and, of course, Spanish. Uh, so, and, and he knows the roads and he knows where he's going. Um, you know, we've certainly been to some very off-the-beaten-path places and, and uh, we haven't run into any trouble, and I think it's rare that, that people would. But uh, let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. Oaxaca, geographically, 
is sort of away from maybe some of the um, the smuggling trade that might come up through Latin America, mm-hmm. uh, through Mexico. So Oaxaca is kind of off to the side, which is a good fact. Are you received any worse? Uh, in Mexico, oh. because of our current president, uh, like, no. are they no. are, are they like let's 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 get them all drunk on mezcal, then they can't build the wall. I mean, what are they? What's the <laughs> well, one one thing I do to to show them who I am is uh, you know one one of my favorite brands is uh, Illegal and Illegal Mezcal, and Illegal is very political, and which is one mm. of the reasons I like them. Mm. And so they have an advertising campaign. Uh, with the centerpiece being the phrase Donald Ures un pendejo, which means Donald, you're an asshole. <laughs> and so, and so one of the things I do when I'm there is I have a T-shirt, a Donald Ures un pendejo T-shirt, and I will sport that T-shirt around Mexico City, Oaxaca, and people are like high-fiving me uh, on the streets. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's it's good good to let them know you're on their side. I am anyway, but yeah, uh, and sure. I think. They probably know almost anybody who's coming down there for a mezcal tour, which there's a lot of mezcal tourism. Uh, people know that, hey, you look, you're here for the product and you're probably supportive of what we do. That's your Kevlar vest. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's totally awesome. So um, so once again, let's let's go back to the pinas and like yes. how they're smoked in the yes. pits and what, what, what brings us to the fermentation okay. because it's natural yeast fermentation, yes. which I just did a, a podcast with a gentleman who has a festival and it's just all about wild fermentation. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that's important because that, helps in a, the reflection of the terroir. The concept of this is where it comes yep. from because this is where the yeast comes from, right? Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, you, you, I think you've no. asked me about the production process four times and I keep glossing I think right past it. We're drinking the mezcal. <laughs> oh, that, I just oh, wanted people to know effect. how it's made because I think it's sure. so much interesting because yep. uh, you know, in tequila you think of autoclaves with these sterile ovens and uh, you know, other spirits you think of yep. this distillation high tall columns yep. you know, and, and this is like, this is done in the earth, yes. in a pit, yes. with like these huge pinas right. that are being cooked and smoked, and so I just kind of want yeah. to walk through that a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. So it starts with the with the harvest of the agave. So mm-hmm. at the end of the, the agave's life, life it's harvested, and um, it has a lot of agaves have have like kind of spiky leaves that you you may have seen, like sort of like swords coming out of the core of the plant. There they do come in different shapes and sizes. So I don't want to say it's just all that, but let's say the bulk of it is. Um, and so you chop off the leaves, and what's left is sort of a ball. Uh, they call it a piña. It's a pine. It looks kind of like a pineapple when you chop off all the leaves. And the size of the piñas can be from the size of like a basketball, like a small mm-hmm. agave, like a tobala, mm-hmm. is a type of as a one varietal. Or some espadines are you know three four hundred pounds. I mean they're massive. Wow. You know fifty basketballs. So yeah. um, anyhow, you, you but you harvest the plant, and so from there they harvest the plant. They take all the plants to an earthen pit. And so what it's, you can think of it as about 10 feet wide, roughly 10 feet wide, maybe 15, and about 10 feet deep in kind of cone shape, so conically shaped down to the bottom of the pit. They light a fire in the bottom of the pit. They, the fire gets going. They put rocks on top of the wood. Um, and so then the rocks get super hot. They lay burlap sacks, generally burlap or agave fiber, over the rocks. And then they pile the piñas in. So these piñas that they've, they've harvested, they get put all around the pit on top of the, the hot glowing rocks. And they put this um, agave fiber between the rocks and the piñas so the piñas don't get overly charred because that's mm-hmm. where the fire is. And then from there they stack up the piñas. And the, and the pile of piñas might go to you know five or so feet above ground. So you have this mound now of piñas. From there, from there they either put agave fibers or burlap sack on top of those piñas 
and then they put about a foot or two of earth on top of the burlap sacks. Oh, wow. So now what do you have? You have this sealed earthen pit. It's a, you know, it's a barbecue. It's in there sure. cooking, but yeah. there's nothing coming out, right? And so that will cook for, depending on the, the, the season, the types of agave, the mescalero, um, anywhere from, let's say, three to five days. Mm. Wow. So, yeah. So those, okay. those pinas get roasted, and they're, they're effectively being caramelized right. over, the, over that three to five day period. So then they, you know, they uncover it, and now you have charred pinas, and some the, the level of char may vary throughout the pit. So you know, all, again, all these little nuances sure. matter in the production process. And some mescaleros won't even put any protection between the rocks and the pinas. So the ones that are right against it might be supercharred, right against right. the rocks and the fire might be supercharred. Uh, and they might choose to peel off a layer of that pina before they put it through the mashing process. Uh, but at any rate, you know, you have, all, again, a lot of little nuances there. So then they take the pinas and they mash them. And the most common way to mash is probably something that, you know, it, it, it conjures up beautiful imagery, which is a horse drawn to Hona, a big stone grinding meal that's drawn by a horse or a donkey or a bull, and it's pulled around a, a, a circular grinding mill. And they're just, you know, they, they have a guy that's tending to the horse, and he's tending to the agave fibers, and they're putting the, the cooked pinas in there, and the stone mill just continues to grind and wow. crush and crush. That. It's, it's great to see. I mean, it's, it's super cool. That's crazy. But, yeah. you know, in some mescaleros, you know, they can't afford a horse. They can't afford a grinding mill. And so they, they have, like, basically mallets, and they're, they're smashing this by hand. So, again, super manual labor. I mean, th- this is like an intense Think process. about trying to break down a 400-pound... Uh, pina like yeah. with a mallet yeah that's just labor exactly like crazy yeah, yeah. If, and if it's a lot of manual labor i've swung a few mallets down there i, I think they think all the americans are nuts when they want <laughs> they want to participate a little bit but sure. you're like oh, let me see what this is yeah. and you're like holy crap you know this, this is like work yeah it's like when you're at the circus and they have the guy yeah. with the, the, the bell that you got to ring with the mallet and, right. s- and send it up the tower <laughs> that's what you feel like when you're mashing these uh so that's the mashing process and then they take all those fibers that have been mashed and they put them in a fermentation tank. So, you know, all the fibers are being loaded. This isn't, you know, like tequila or other spirits where you're just taking the juice only right. and that's going into a fermentation tank and then a still. Here, all the fibers are going in. Okay. So they put all the fibers in, they add water, water to it, uh, usually again spring water or, or there's something from a river nearby, but rarely sort of the, the Oaxacan water district is r- rarely nearby. So that fermentation process, again, depending on season, um, type of agave choices by the mescalero that could take a week to 10 days mm-hmm. the fermentation process and then when that's over then they take that mash and really what you have is it's kind of like a you know oatmeal with with fiber right so it's uh it's super thick and and not more like a stew than a soup and so they take that um those fibers and that mash and they put it and it's got you know it's juice heavy too and they put that into the still and again usually in very like the, the vats are reasonably large let's say eight by eight in diameter, um, and then a still is super small. So from one fermentation tank, you might load that still 20 times, depending on, uh, and do 20 different distillation runs uh, in that still with with whatever's been fermented. So that's the last part. And that fermentation, by the way, I mentioned the the yeast before. So again, all these fermentation tanks are just sitting out in the open. And so whatever yeasts are in and around that palenque are driving a lot of the flavor profile. So when we taste banana or mango or pineapple or pine or you know right. plenty of other things um a lot of that's driven by the yeast and so the yeasts are super important okay. in, in the in mezcal production so that's the terroir um we have to definitely uh 
Um, we have to definitely talk about Pechuga. Oh. Uh, and while I'm going to, why don't we do the next? Uh, sure. Let's do the uh, uh, Cinco Sentidos. Yes. Uh, we'll finish with this mezcal. And uh, this is good for you? Yeah, yeah. All right. And it's mezcal. It's mezcal, yeah. <laughs> of course it's good for me. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you people, you have to jump on the mezcal uh, bandwagon. You have to. It is, it'll it'll change your life. It is such an amazing spirit. Cheers. Uh, so We say Dijbe. Uh, um, that's Dijbe. one of the, the, yeah. the, the cheers in, uh, in Oaxaca that people say is Dijbe because it's a Zapotec. It's a, uh, it's, um, that's an indigenous language in and around the Oaxaca area. Hmm. And so Dijbe to them... It's more than cheers. Okay. It's, I appreciate this moment. I appreciate these people that I'm with. I'm enjoying this time together. So we wow. say Dijbe. Dijbe, absolutely. So Pechuga is interesting. Mm. Let's talk about Pechuga. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so Pechuga, Pechuga means breast. And so you may see, uh, have seen the word Pechuga associated with mezcals. Uh, and what's happening in a, in a Pechuga is after the second or third distillation, up to the mescalero, how they want to produce, um, they generally will, will use a chicken breast for this example, but they take a, a washed, clean chicken breast, and for the, let's say, the third distillation, they will hang that chicken breast in the still. So the vapors, uh, as it, the distillation process starts, the vapors will pass over that chicken breast. And also in the still, in the, the now the, um, the, in the distillate, because all the fibers are gone now, this right. will be the second or third distillation run, um, they will put fruits, nuts, whatever's kind of local, wild, and in season, they will put that in, in the, the distillate. So it'll be wow. sitting, that'll be sitting and floating in right. the mezcal, berries, apples, nuts, whatever. And that's a very traditional way is, to make mezcal. And pechuga still mezcal? Yeah, and pechuga is still mezcal. Okay. Yeah, so it's just right. a, it, it's a different expression. It's right. generally made with agave espadine, which okay. is the most common type, as I mentioned. And um, so what happens, so why, right? Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. So first, uh, I don't think there's anybody that really knows exactly how it started, but it could go, go all the way back to the Aztecs and sacrificing, you know, human beings or chickens or cows or whatever. So some people right. think it might go back really far and you're mm-hmm. sacrificing this chicken breast effectively to make this mezcal. So what happens is that, is that distillate, um, as it condenses and the vapors rise in the still and they pass over the chicken breast, they're picking up some of the, the savoriness of that chicken breast. Wow. And that's counterbalanced by all the fruit and nuts in the still. So you have this yin and a yang uh, of, of, of greatly different flavor profiles. And what end, what you end up with, they call it a, a pechuga. So it's a very ceremonial mezcal. Like people for a wedding, you know, the mezcalero is making, making a pechuga for his daughter's wedding. No doubt about it. Or, you know, it's a very, very traditional. They use different yeah. animals. They use chicken. They use deer. Yeah. I mean, um, deer, have, have deer. You, can you taste the difference animal to animal? Or is it just a, is it a protein thing I, that happens? I, I, like I, a molecular, like deep protein chain that drops I, in that gives it a texture? What, I mean, what does it do? Yes, that. Do you know? I, yeah. I, I like that. Can I use uh, that yeah, that's all you. That's all you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, um, you know, I can't taste the the difference between you know something that's been made with deer or rooster, uh, turkey breast. You see, I've had iguana. Iguana. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, they can make it with anything, and so I, I, think I love the idea of all the local like nuts, fruits that are very seasonal. Because yeah, we try to eat as seasonal as possible with the green market stuff. I love the idea of having a seasonal pachuga. That is like brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's That's super cool. Really it's super cool. cool. Yeah, um, I'll tell you a quick funny story um, about this one—the the pechuga that we were drinking—and the first thing we had today 
from Felix and Hellas. Um, this is a, a pechuga, but it's a pechuga made from the agave tobasiche. Mm. So as I said most pechugas are made with espadine. It's super common. Uh, you don't see pechuga, pechugas made with other varietals of agave. So tobasiche is, is another varietal. Not that common of an agave, but very prevalent in Santa, Santa Catarina Minas. So when I was at his Palenque, and I was there with, a, I happened to be there with another mescalero that had come with us on our tour, and I saw, you know, the Tobasiche Pechuga, and my, my friend, the other mescalero, he's like, oh yeah, you know, he also has an Araqueño Pechuga, which is another varietal. He has a Quiche Pechuga, another varietal. So this particular mescalero is making Pechugas with a lot of different types of agave, which is highly unusual. Mm. And so my friend, you know, asked him in Spanish, he says, you know, why are you making these pechugas with all these different agave varietals? And the mescalero said, ah, because the gringos will pay a lot for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was me. Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. So where do people go to have the best mezcal? Give me, give me a couple of no. great mezcal bars in New York. If you want yeah. the name of the city, you can name it the city. Sure. What's a good restaurant? What, who yeah. is, what's the place people go and try a flight? It'll blow right. you away. I mean, this stuff we yep. tasted today, just crazy. Yeah. How great this mezcal is. I guarantee you, people listening, will it'll change their mind forever, and they will, they'll be the, the coolest people in the room ordering uh, uh, artisanal mezcal. But where should they go in New York City? You can just say the word out, out loud, mezcal, in a mezcal. New York bar, and people like look at you. They're like, oh, what are you, what are you talking about over there? Chileo? <laughs> they don't say that to me, but yeah. maybe you. No, not me either. They're like, who the fuck? Okay. Uh, so, you know, I live downtown. Mm -hmm. I live in Tribeca, okay. so... Uh, you know, if, if I have to go above like 14th Street, I need my passport. So most okay, of, cool. most wow. of my reference points are, are going to be downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think even it, like the great mezcal bars are downtown and, and a lot in Brooklyn. So in the neighborhood down here in Yeho, Tribeca, uh, they have a fantastic mezcal selection everywhere from, you know, really nice cocktail oriented mezcals all the way up to whole Gorio mm -hmm. black bottles. You know, the stuff isn't cheap. Uh, Cosme. Which is you know above my uh, above my DMZ zone on you know yeah, it's in the twenties <laughs> or something. Yep, yeah, yep. yeah. Okay. But it's super high end Mexican restaurant, celebrity chef Mexican restaurant. Food's amazing, not cheap again, mm -hmm. but uh, their bar program is amazing. For Atla. Atla, Atla, their yeah. sister, their yeah. their sort of lesser um, mm -hmm. fancy mm -hmm. place on on Lafayette has a fantastic mezcal collection. Uh, Rosa Mexicana here in Tribeca has a great mezcal selection. Any under-the-radar places you love? Like you quietly um, slink away with your wife on a romantic evening? You know, we go to, we go to way too many Mexican joints. Just ask her. Yeah, okay. <laughs> She'll be like, Mexican uh, again? Really? Okay. You're kidding. Uh, but, when, yeah, when I, a lot of times when I have people in town or friends or, or you know, people contact me through the, the book and the blog again, They'll say, where should I go right. in New York? And, and I, these are the places I send them to because okay. I think they have the best mezcal selections in the city. So we've been chatting for about 45 minutes, oh, and man. we had, uh, I don't know, three, four shots of mezcal. Yeah. What is it about the high with mezcal? Because ah. <laughs> I'm glowing. I feel yeah, like I have a ton of yeah. energy. Uh, it, it's not a crazy energy. It's a, it's a lifter. It's not a downer yeah, for yeah. sure. Right? Yeah. It yeah. Is. You, you feel, I feel great when I have mezcal. 
I have it regularly, God knows. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it is absolutely, it's more of a stimulant than a, than a depressant. True. Uh, I haven't looked into the, the science behind it, even though I, I am a Mescal PhD. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> cheek. Yeah. Uh, of course. Uh, but that's yeah, my no. blog, by the way, MescalPhD.com. Okay, so everybody should listen, listen to that and check it out. Uh, yeah, it's not a downer. It's not a, uh, you know, let's go insane. It's not a Dennis Hopper, like, fucking go fuck the world kind of high. No. It's a very kind of happy, joyous uh, beautiful, uplifting experience, and uh, um, so let's mention your blog one more time. Your book, yeah. Holy Smoke, on a second uh, yeah. revision. Amen yeah. to that. Yeah. Holy Smoke, it's Mescal. Huh? I only sell it on Amazon. Okay, I've I've never really looked into taking it further than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, for me, it's a, a passion and and a love. So it, it's not about the economics. I don't know if you can make any money writing a book anyway, so I don't really care. Right. But you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, there's a, the, the Holy Smoke, it's Mescal, the revised second edition that I put out in 2018. There's a, a black and white and a color version. And then the original was in 2014. And then my, my blog is Mescal PhD. And Mescal PhD is really all about Mescal education, like what we're doing here. Yeah. T- just talking about and celebrating what an amazing spirit this is and the history and the culture. Uh, it's just something that's been around for 500 years, and it's essentially made in the same way it was 500 years ago, yeah. which is you don't really find. So they're no. really protecting that, and it's it, and the product shows. Sure. If you industrialize it, it's done. It's horrible. Sure, I agree. And then um, for me, I, I feel great because I just rediscovered it, and I, I feel happy to be part of any kind of thing that can help elevate this uh, uh, spirit because it's absolutely beautiful. It's artisanal. It's like as great as anything you're going to put in your glass from Amara to Absinthe to whatever. Um, Mezcal is, it's the deal. I want to thank you, John. Thank you. For, um, being on DOTJ Podcast. Man. I'm very, very honored to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for hosting me. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar.